0: I'm Marianne Williamson, and welcome to the Transform podcast, where we will examine the forces of chaos that threaten to destroy us and the acts of love that can make the whole thing transform. The economic system in America today is a system of economic tyranny. The economic system that prevails in America today does not just ignore the poor. It is not just turn a blind eye to the poor. There is a systemic war on the poor in America. And there is a reason for that. And that is because the kind of capital- capitalism that is being practiced in America today An unfettered capitalism with no sense of moral or ethical responsibility to anything beyond its fiduciary responsibility to its stockholders, with no sense of moral or ethical responsibility to the larger stakeholders of the workers and the communities and the environment needs cheap labor. It needs cheap labor. This isn't a matter of, come on, guys, don't be so greedy. This isn't a matter of, come on, guys, don't be so selfish. This is a matter of us standing up and recognizing in America, we don't do aristocracy. We're living at a time of historic change, obviously, a time when things have to change or chaos will ensue unlike anything any of us have ever seen before. I think that the human race is being challenged to evolve on some very fundamental levels or we will not have a sustainable future. You can't talk about the forces of chaos that are pulling us apart without talking about economics. And you can't talk about the forces of economics that are pulling us apart without talking about capitalism.
1: Get this, the richest one percent controls more wealth now than at any time in more than a half century.
2: The U.S. authorities are investigating the leak of details claiming to show how little tax is paid by some of America's richest people. According to the ProPublica news outlet, the 25 wealthiest Americans pay tax at a far lower rate than the average worker. The richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, will soon blast off into space. But Amazon employee Vicki Shannon-Allen says Amazon's work demands are ruining her life. It's been the ultimate nightmare.
1: 2% of all millennial wealth is controlled by one person, Mark Zuckerberg.
2: And nearly one in eight Americans say they do not have enough to eat each week. That's according to the latest census data.
0: Because of the undue influence of corporate money on our politics, our government has become basically a system of legalized bribery. It does more to serve the short-term profitability of huge multinational corporate interests than it does to serve the health and well-being of the people of this country, of this world, of other species, and of the planet itself. It's understood that an unfettered, unregulated capitalism that has been thrust upon the American people over the last 40 years has weaponized capitalism in such a way that it has been used not to help the majority of people, but to literally harm the majority of people. It is a requirement of good government to codify ethical values into public policies so that capitalism is not allowed to overreach, get out of its lane, and be used as such a destructive force in the lives of millions of people. Here's economist and
2: author of The Deficit Myth,
0: Stephanie Kelton.
2: For uh, you know a variety of uh, reasons, we have per- we have constructed, I'll say constructed, because it's deliberate, right? These things don't happen by chance. There have been a series of decisions, deliberate ones, when it comes to our tax policy, our trade policy, our labor policies, um, you know, environmental things that we have done have built an economy that doesn't work for half the population or more, right? And that has left us vulnerable in so many ways.
0: Pushing back against the forces of unfettered capitalism is a grand American tradition. That is why we have labor unions. It's why we have child labor laws. It's not like all of a sudden capitalism has become a behemoth, hegemonic force that we have to be concerned about. We can't talk about the damage done by unfettered, unregulated capitalism without a focus on monopolies. Monopolistic behavior is the way capitalism becomes weaponized. That's why any serious pushback against overreach by capitalism always includes anti-monopolistic laws and antitrust. No one has provided a clearer understanding of the history of monopolies in the United States, the damage that has been done by them, and what is needed in order to fight back than Matt Stoller.
1: Going back to the Revolutionary War, all the way through the, the Civil War and up until the Progressive Era, there was kind of this a set of questions about how do you run a democratic society? Can a democratic society actually Work? Can a people be the self-governing people? And if, if not, what's the alternative? And so you had, you had effectively two models for how to think about organizing power in America. One was the kind of Hamiltonian way, which was we'll just have a bunch of monopolies run things. We'll have bankers, military elites, and monopolists, industrial monopolists running things. The alternative model, you know, I guess you could call it maybe Thomas Paine, but all the way through Frederick Douglass, and into Woodrow Wilson was, we're gonna have a democratic order in the marketplace. We're gonna have free competition. Everyone's gonna have a little bit of property and won't be able to bully other people. You can do what you want with your property, but you can't have too much and you can't use it in coercive ways. The political debates up until 1912 led to a kind of resolution where we would have an anti-monopoly policy framework across government. So we would allow for big business to exist. Big business still existed, but they would be under constant threat of antitrust lawsuits. There would be a regulatory state to make sure that they didn't become too powerful. He kind of of figured it out in the 1930s with the New Deal. President Franklin Roosevelt established the New
0: Deal and laid out for the American people what he called the Economic Bill of
3: Rights. The right of farmers to raise and sell their products at a return which will give them and their families a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad.
1: During the New Deal, that's how we kind of impose this sort of Neo-Jeffersonian idea on the economy, you'd have a lot of small business formation, a lot of political opportunity for everyone and protections for workers, for engineers, for artists, for farmers, in, di- in various different ways. Uh, that was a way of, of fighting back against the oligarchs, the financial oligarchs that controlled the economy really up until the 1930s.
0: He said he welcomed the hatred of those who called him a socialist. He said that they were economic royalists and that the United States would not be reverting to economic royalism.
3: It is true that the toes of some people are being stepped on and are going to be stepped on. But these toes belong to the comparative few who seek to retain or to gain Position or riches or both by some shortcut that is harmful to the greater good. Look, we came out of a fantastic depression. Economist Richard Wolf. So from 1929 to 1941, that's a long time, 12 years, we were in a depressed economic system. We had in 1933 a peak unemployment rate of 25%. Uh, many times worse than what it is right now. Every family was touched by unemployment. We had desperate poverty, we had homelessness, and you name it, only in much greater uh, extent than, than what we have now. And the government came in, in a massive way, and fixed this situation. corporations and the rich, to create Social Security, to create unemployment compensation, to create a federal jobs program. The government came in and saved the day. Stephanie Colton.
2: You're in the Great Depression and you look around and, and you think, wow, how could we have done that at a time when the nation was at its poorest, when there was no money? And the answer was, well, the federal government had that special power that the rest of us don't have. It could commit to spending all of the money that was necessary to establish uh, and support these programs.
0: For decades after the New Deal, Roosevelt's vision of a basically economically fair society prevailed. It didn't always prevail in a very meaningful way for tens of millions of people, but still the effort at universal economic fairness did prevail. In the 1970s, the average American worker had a very good chance of owning a home of a job with good benefits of the ability to take a vacation every year of being able to send their kids to college of owning a car of a couple being able to have one parent should they choose stay home with the kids rather than both parents having to work in order to be able to pay the family bills that was in the 1970s that was when I was growing up I experienced being young, not having a lot of money, but it almost didn't matter so much. I lived at a time when being young didn't include this kind of economic sense of survival and fear and terror about what lay before me that so many young people feel today.
3: In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem.
0: The night before Ronald Reagan was elected president, Jimmy Carter and Reagan were on television, and I remember thinking, there's no way the American people are going to elect Ronald Reagan president. There's no way the American people are going to buy into this. And boy, was I wrong.
3: If the deficit continues to grow, it will not be because the Congress cut taxes too much, but because it refused to cut spending enough. They just can't face discovering that their tax and tax spend and spend philosophy over all these years didn't work, doesn't work, and won't work.
1: Economist
3: Marshall Steinbaum.
1: They had systematically were able to dismantle the various elements of policy that set up this more multi-constituency type of economic arrangement, such that we are now back in a resurrection of the Gilded Age where shareholders of dominant corporations and financially powerful basically run the economy to their own interest.
0: Matt Stoller.
1: They changed merger law, they changed antitrust law, they changed a bunch of regulatory policies. This often goes under the rubric of deregulation.
3: I put a freeze on pending regulations and set up a task force under Vice President Bush to review regulations with an eye toward getting rid of as many as possible.
1: So you had a bunch of mergers in the 1980s, 90s and 2000s. The small store, the retail store went away and in its place you had Walmart, uh, Target, chain stores. You also saw roll-ups in media, media uh, consolidation is a huge thing. Defense industrial base, uh, software, you have technology, mining, wherever you go, railroads, shipping, wherever you go in the economy.
3: On this day, with high hopes and brave hearts in massive numbers, the American people have voted to make a new beginning. There was a lot
0: of hope in the air when Bill Clinton was elected president because we were still assuming that the Democratic Party was the container for the more progressive values and dreams that had been core to the Democratic Party for decades. We didn't recognize that what Bill Clinton would do would be to actually increase in certain ways, to codify in certain ways the neoliberal principles. We didn't expect Bill Clinton to be someone who would establish the Democratic Leadership Council. We didn't expect Bill Clinton to be someone whose basic message was, well, we can play with the big guys too, to sort of create a democratic party that tried to have it both ways.
3: It is true that the Glass-Steagall law is no longer appropriate to the economy in which we live. Today, what we're doing is modernizing the financial services industry, tearing down these antiquated walls and granting banks significant new authority. In becoming the 43rd president of the United States, George W. Bush will assume the sacred trust as guardian of our Constitution.
0: When George W. Bush came into office, of course, he continued the trend of the giant tax cuts. All of this under the guise of trickle-down economics, that you would put more money into the hands of the job creators, and all that money would trickle down and lift all boats, which it didn't, of course, and they pretty much knew that it wouldn't. This wasn't about helping the little guy. This was always about putting more and more money into the hands of those who already had a lot of it. This was all part of the trajectory of the massive transfer of wealth, into the hands of the 1%.
3: No one should pay more than a third of the money they earn in federal income taxes, so we lowered the top rate to 33%. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. We've seen triple-digit swings in the stock market. Major financial institutions have teetered on the edge of collapse, and some have failed. As uncertainty has grown, many banks have restricted lending. Credit markets have frozen, and families and businesses have found it harder to borrow money. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis.
0: Many people did predict the financial crisis of 2008, but most of us weren't necessarily looking at the particulars. We certainly felt it, however, when it happened. What was most disappointing was not only that it happened, but also how the Obama administration handled it. You'd think they had been working out of a Republican playbook because they took care of Wall Street and left Main Street to fend for itself.
2: Newly installed Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner appointed Mark Patterson, and this is a former top lobbyist for Goldman Sachs as his chief of staff.
0: Barack Obama was given a mandate to change this. He was given a mandate to be a progressive president. He was given a mandate to be the president that he indicated he would be when he was campaigning.
3: Because the truth is, what Senator McCain said yesterday fits with the same economic philosophy that he's had for the last 26 years. It's the philosophy that says we should give more and more to those with the most and hope that prosperity trickles down. The president today mounted an angry offense against his fellow Democrats, who accuse him of caving to Republican demands. The proposed compromise extends for two years the Bush era tax cuts for all, including the highest earners.
0: He took the entire neoliberal economic worldview and he turned it into the definitive characteristic of both political parties. That is so much a part of what created the phenomenon of Donald Trump. And if that neoliberal nonsense is not interrupted now, it will create another Donald Trump, someone perhaps even worse.
1: President Trump wants to slash taxes on corporations by more than half, from 35 percent to 15 percent. And he wants to cut taxes for many Americans, too but many of the familiar tax breaks for individual Americans would go away.
0: We have a government whose policies do more to advocate for the ability of those who already have a lot of money to make more money and makes it more difficult for those who do not have money to even make it at all. But those are not just statistics. Those are not just dry facts. Those are human lives we're talking about. And what this has created is a huge sea of unnecessary human suffering.
2: My name is Cassandra. I live in Tennessee. This economic system is not working for me. Me and my entire family, no children, thankfully. We're homeless. We were evicted during the supposed halt on eviction. There were loopholes. The evictions never stopped.
3: Hello, Marianne. My name is Eric. I am calling from uh, Norwich, Connecticut. I would say that American capitalism is not working for me because I have a degree in engineering and have been unable to find any employment.
0: That human experience of the tension, the economic tension and anxiety of tens of millions of people who don't know what will happen if they get sick and don't know what's going to happen if their children get sick. Uh, don't know how they're going to send their kids to college, don't know how they're going to get out from under these college loans. So you you can talk all you want to about your economic theories, but this is the human experience that whatever the economic theories are that brought us to this place, this is what it has wrought. So what is happening now is you've got a lot of young people. I know you meet them, I meet them. And they're looking and they're saying, what the hell has global capitalism
1: ever done for me? Hi, Marianne. My name is Ruben. I'm calling from Florida. So, in my opinion, the American economy works for me as long as I don't get sick or need a college degree. So basically, it does not work for me. (laughs) And I don't think it's working for anyone.
3: If you look at the statistics, the level of debt, uh, debt for our homes, debt for our cars, debt for our daily expenses in the credit card, and the most grievous one for me, debt for our students. Instead of celebrating that we have young people wanting to learn and grow, we make it enormously difficult for them, loading them up with debt they cannot ever repay. They can just agonize over.
0: Former Ohio State Senator and Bernie Sanders presidential campaign co-chair, Nina Turner. You know, there are about 140 million people
1: in this country who are either poor or low-income. And we have a system that bends to the wheel of the ultra wealthy in this country at the expense of the poor, the working poor. And, and I always say the barely middle class these days because the, the, the middle class is, is slipping away. Bill from Missouri. I'm a Navy veteran and an attorney. I don't think the current form of capitalism can be salvaged, uh, not in its current form not even close. You can't fill the skies with carbon and fill the seas with plastic and and usher in a climate catastrophe and, and still maintain credibility.
0: Activist and filmmaker Peter Joseph.
1: Exploitation really is built into the system and that's why a dead tree is more valuable than a living tree from the standpoint of the structure of the system. So you look at the enormous destructive I mean every life support system is currently in decline. You have elements of rainforest that are now producing more CO2 because of how disturbed the ecosystems have become. Uh, obviously all the topsoil water pollution, you know, it, it goes on and on. We've all heard this stuff in major lists. Why? Is it because we don't care? Where are we really that dumb that we can't see that our habitat supports us? No, it's this myopic compartmentalization of behavior that has to do with the need to keep cyclical consumption and economic growth going. And it doesn't matter what the outcome is. Well, it matters when it's too late, because that's precisely what we're seeing. Large groups of economically
0: deprived people often form the seeds of fascism. Fascist dictators take advantage of this kind of thing because large groups of desperate people form a kind of petri dish out of which certain kinds of dysfunction are almost inevitable. There is a a level of ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces that often happens when people are desperate for long periods of time and the group of people that is desperate begins to grow. Something similar, something analogous occurred here in the United States with the rise of Donald Trump. So many people had come to understand that the system was rigged against them but weren't exactly sure why, but they knew they were being screwed and they were correct.
1: Our radical Democrat opponents are driven by hatred, prejudice, and rage. They want to destroy you, and they want to destroy our country as we know it. It's not going to happen.
0: The question is, what now? What will replace the neoliberal system that we have? It's going to be one thing or the other. It's either going to be a road to authoritarianism and dystopia, or it's going to be a road to economic sustainability that truly does enhance and expand the economic possibilities of the majority of people. Next time, on part two of Transforming Capitalism, we'll talk about the future of the American
3: economy. There is a solution. There is a way to capture what was good, what was achieved by American capitalism without being dragged down as it declines
0: The Transform podcast has been produced by John Ahrens and Lawrence Selsky. Sound design and original music by John Ahrens and to hear my full interviews with the guests featured on the podcast go to MarianneWilliamson.Substack.com I'm Marianne Thanks for listening